Welcome back to Sit Down Startup Podcast. I'm Pedro. And I am Tara. We are super excited to be back. On the show, we bring inspiring stories from leaders in the startup space in a casual coffee shop style conversation. You'll hear how they navigate the challenges of building a customer-centric business. We bring you actionable insights from all over the world to help you grow your startup by putting your customer first. In today's episode, we have Amanda Renteria, CEO of Code for America. Amanda grew up in a small town in California, graduated from Stanford, and spent most of her career in public service. She was named one of the most influential staffers by Roll Call and received a number of awards as the first Latina chief of staff in the history of the U.S. Now, as the CEO of Code for America, she leads an organization that's on a mission to make the U.S. government work in the digital age by bringing technology and government services together for the people and by the people. Talking about people, Amanda and Code for America are all about the human side of the business. In this episode, she talks with Kristen Durhan, VP of Startups at Zendesk, about how she is building a diverse and equitable organization, designing human-centric programs and systems, and bringing startups' operational principles to the U.S. government. Are you ready? Let's sit down and start up. Amanda, uh, so happy to be with you uh, this morning uh, for our Sit Down Startup podcast. Welcome. Uh, great to have you. Thanks for having me here. Uh, so we like to still daydream about when life was normal. And, and we start off with a basic question of, you know, if we were uh, meeting together in a coffee shop, what what would be your drink order? Ah, uh, um, well, I couldn't, I love my coffee every morning and maybe afternoon and somewhere in between as well. Um, but it's always with canela or uh, cinnamon. So, café de loya. Um, anywhere, anytime, Mexican uh, coffee. And if it's special, a little bit of chile is perfect. Oh, wow. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try that one out. That's new for me. I'm generally an Americano drinker and, and, uh, you know, sometimes a cortado when, when one makes itself available. And hopefully, hopefully it won't be too long before we can, we can enjoy that together. There you go. So super excited about having you here today. Uh, you've had a wide and storied career, I would say, already, uh, which has brought you to your current role at Code for America. For me personally, too, uh, you know, I, I want to geek out a little in, in that I see some parallels uh, in your career to my own, though, admittedly, uh, yours has been far more impressive. Uh, you grew up in a small farming community, as did I, worked in finance and government, and now in tech, served as uh, chief of staff. Can you walk uh, me through your personal journey a little bit more? Um, and, uh, you know, what what it was that it led you to now being at, at Code for America? Sure. Um, you know, it's funny you mentioned growing up in farming community, because for me, I as I think about my career and all the decisions I made, it really begins and ends with where I did grow up in the Central Valley of California, um, one of the lowest income congressional districts in our country. Um, my parents were former farm workers, and I was the first woman and the first um, 
Latina from my high school to go to Stanford. And um, it wasn't necessarily about, I think, Stanford per se, but it was about extending beyond uh, the fence of what small towns are and really seeing a whole new world, not only appreciating where you come from, but seeing the potential that's out there that's sometimes hard to see um, from the places that I grew up in. And I've always been, my through thread through my journey um, has always been, how do I make sure that no matter where you grow up, you can see that potential and you can reach it, define it, go for it. Um, and I know that the only way to be able to do that is we have to have systems, government systems. We have to have a way of reaching folks where you can get out of your little small town and see the diverse world that's out there of potential, but also of people and relationships and everything that comes with the richness of what we see all across America. And so, um, you know, I did have a chance to work in the private sector. I fell in love, though, with public service as a high school teacher back in my hometown, where I realized I had been blessed to have this education. I had worked in the finance industry with the intensity of learning how systems and government were, uh, sorry, money works. And then I went to high school a high school teacher. And I woke up every single day figuring out how to empower kids to see themselves, to reach their own potential. And it's really with that lens that I entered public service. The idea if we could somehow mix the intensity and the excitement and the skill sets that you see in the financial industry to the goals of making people's lives better, what an incredible place that would be. And I found that to be government where you really do and can make change at scale. And so over the course of my 20 year um, career in public service, local um, at the local state and federal level, becoming the first Latino chief of staff in the history of the US Senate, um, throughout that journey, um, I realized that government is a place where you really do affect um, people's lives. And um, I've been extremely lucky and blessed to be in the room, but recognize that there's not enough folks um, with different perspectives or different life experiences at the table. And so throughout my journey, I went from policy to politics, because maybe the way you bring that perspective in is not just in policy table, um, and not just at the policy table, but maybe it's in electing people that bring a different lived experience. And so I did politics for a little while. And then I got to a, a point in my career where I had seen a lot of different ways of affecting change. And the place that we are in today is really how do we make government systems work? And we have a unique opportunity with technology to leverage technology in order to really shape the way people are affected by government. And that's really what has led me to Code for America. There are very few organizations out there who have spent more than a decade particularly working on in low-income communities, some of the hardest-to-reach communities, and connecting them to government programs that are intended to help. And I think we have a, an opportunity right now um, in this country, a very unique window, largely because of COVID and social distancing, where we can actually change the way government talks to all people through technology. And so I'm incredibly blessed to be a part of an organization that's been dedicated to that, that does it. And I think that is ripe for the moment we're in right now. Fantastic. Can you share a little bit more? Uh, we have some international listeners, and it would be great if you could share a little bit more about Code for America, uh, the big ambition of the organization and, and some of the problems you're trying to solve. Sure. So we, um, our key mission is to really work 
um, to push government to be both people-centered and responsive. Um, the tech way of saying that is you've all heard perhaps of human-centered design, but really thinking of government systems starting from the people who use them. As an example, um, we entered food stamps. The food stamps uh, policy is one that has fought years and years on how do we make sure we have these resources. And yet the program itself, um, there hadn't been a lot of work done on how do we make sure it actually reaches the people it was intended to serve. And so about 10 years ago, um, Code for America went through this process of really understanding uh, the people who are served by government. What we immediately found out with food stamps is that it was a desktop application in the largest state in the union in California. And tech said, wait a second, or Code for America said, wait a second, how do we, how do we reach these folks if we're not even talking in the medium in which people can get these services? And so we created a mobile app that could do it. We worked with local leaders, community-based organizations to, to get it out there so it was a trusted entity. Um, and today we now have one of the easiest, simple um, ways of accessing food benefits. Um, this became even more important during a pandemic when all of a sudden um, people had to be away, school lunch programs were out. How do we on the back end make sure that we have the data matching, the tech feasibility in order to reach people in the hardest um, to reach communities? And I, the only way um, we've seen across the country is those states and those communities that were digital ready to be able to do that, to find folks, um, were able to really reach the need that was out there. And so Code for America has been involved in, I like to say, uh, we're the battery power behind a lot of these government programs that are serving um, our most marginal marginalized communities around the country. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think there's no doubt uh, that you solve real problems, right? Sometimes, you know, we see companies that are kind of looking for a problem to fix and you guys, you have them in, in abundance, which is great. Um, I know you also talk about the principles of building up and working lean, iterating quickly. All of these are very familiar in startup land, but maybe not uh, when working with government. How how do you bridge that divide uh, as you go into, into projects? So this is what we love um, is many times we do feel like we're bridge building different um, perspectives, different industries, but we first start with an underlying premise that not all systems were built to be equitable. It's a really important piece to it that I think we are all as a country um, beginning to understand in a much uh, in a much more personal, real way. That if you start with systems that were intended to actually leave people out, we're not interested in actually building those better, right? We're actually interested in deconstructing them. So to start with the idea that all systems were um, equitable means that we can start from the very beginning. The second piece we do is we center people. So the people who are using it are really where our research comes from, where we stand in line with people who are getting, um, who are going to volunteer sites to get help on their tax forms. Um, we sit with folks who have criminal records, who haven't been able to expunge them and should be able to, but the system is too hard. And we research it. We sit with them. We understand what's happening. We also sit with government um, public servants who are actually administering those programs to also understand the other side of that coin 
And then we build the mechanisms, whether that's process design, um, whether that's an app that's needed, whether that's a chat box that's needed. And we build it with government, not on our own, not to do it ourselves, but we build it with the public servants who are delivering these programs. And then we embed it over time. The part that I think is uh, really exciting is that we are bringing these private practices that you see in startups, right? improve continuously, data-driven, um, empower for action so that we're not just, you know, we're not creating a consulting project on the on the shelf, but we're actually teaching government how to continue to have feedback loops to get better. And that's the part where I think um, what we've seen, people's eyes light up. Public servants are excited about these kinds of new processes, and it allows them to really make a connection with private sector organizations who are out there or just really understanding what it means to be and deliver people-centered work and continuously evolve at the same time. Yeah, I think, you know, Code for America, you operate in, in a space that's only now kind of becoming more common for SaaS and other companies. You know, we might call it B2B to C uh, or maybe B to G to C, uh, business to, to government to citizen, um, where you're effectively serving two customers at the same time, you know, business, government, uh, consumers or, or citizens on the other side. From my own perspective, you're probably tackling two of the hardest customer profiles to serve, uh, you know, something that is very big enterprise-like on, on legacy systems. And as you said, underserved, hard to reach communities that need government services. As a CEO, how do, how do you wake up every day and, and prioritize these customers and their experiences in, in your day-to-day -day operations? Yeah, I wake up recognizing how important the bridge is that we are building, um, that we need both legacy systems to move in different ways, and we need to understand the folks we are serving better. Um, one of the things that it, I've become, that anyone in this space becomes well aware of is there haven't actually been enough attempts to try and reach some of our hardest to reach communities, our immigrant communities, our low income communities. And so we come into this space and recognize there's a lot of experiments to run, right? And if we can map that out and be methodical about, let's try this, did it work? Let's try that, did it work? To be able to go to that thoughtful process, we know we'll, we will get to solutions faster. And that's what drives our engineers, our designers, our partners, to make sure that we're able to pull out that analytical data, that we're able to test and pilot. And at the end of the program, and many of the government programs have sort of an annual, an annual track, at the end of it, we're able to actually synthesize that, not only build lessons for how we do the work better in the coming year, but build lessons that we can give to the entire ecosystem of how do you reach this community that has largely been forgotten by, by the way, not just government systems, but also the private sector. Um, and that's what keeps me up at night, which is um, we are in a space where there's not enough. And at the same time, we have a ton to offer. And I just wish I had more time. We had more time to do it and that we had been doing this for not just one decade, but two decades, because I feel like we would be further along at this moment of crisis and be able to reach more people, understand um, the base we're trying to help. 
So Code for America, you said started about a decade ago. Um, it's also when Zendesk got started and a lot of companies that were really, really prompted by the the first smartphones making it out into the world, uh, you know, really enabled a lot of that. Is technology changing what you're able to do at Code for America in terms of in terms of reaching uh, communities? Absolutely, it's um, it has not only you know if you think of government systems speaking to people, they used to do that through paper. Um, they did it often through, uh, in-person, hard to get to, uh, buildings. And we believe taking that now online, it allows for an entirely new conversation. It also, the, our process and working with government, government public servants is we're also able to actually look at each of the questions and say, is this getting us to better or is this pushing people out? And so, Technology allows us not only to see those different levers and, and test it out, but it really is a new highway to reach folks. And one of the things that we often talk about um, is we're not just moving things from paper to online, but we are trying to actually upgrade um, government service as a whole. It's, it's not just about digitizing it. It really is about being better, seeing more people, serving more people with dignity and respect. And so maybe as technology has enabled changes, I think also we've just seen customer expectations shift a lot over that same period, maybe somewhat driven by technology, but uh, also just by how the culture has changed. You know, we have social media, we have all of these things at our fingertips now. How does, you know, how have changing customer expectations presented themselves or not uh, as you work with government and as you work with uh, maybe hard to reach communities? You know, it's uh, one of the things we talk about a lot because uh, it's easy to frame. um, uh, It's easier to see today how certain customers are treated, um, what kind of quick service they get versus other communities. And you see that in real time. Technology allows you to go, wait a second, it's broken here and it works there, right? The website is 24-7 and has a chat box and this website closes at 5 p.m. and you ask a question, never get answer- it never gets answered. Um, one of the things that weighs on my heart heavily, and anyone at Code for America will tell you this, is that um, for a lot of the communities we are reaching, um, they don't have time um, or the energy to fight for better, right? You're, you're in a crisis. You're trying to get food on the table. Your kid no longer has access to school lunch programs. You feel a little bit helpless to a criminal justice system that continues to have a record to which you've already paid your debt. Um, I think it is a daunting expectation for folks that find themselves in that place to try and take the system or have higher expectations. And I think it's probably one of the things I am most sad about but also most hopeful that I think by good systems, we can just come, people will just come to expect that food stamp program or food assistance is on my phone. And this is how it works, right? That we will come to expect that when I've paid my debt, I'm automatically cleared. But right now at this moment, 
our community expectations and the communities that we serve aren't quite there yet. Part of our vision is to actually push those expectations in a way that they should be pushed, where you should expect your government not to make it harder for you when you find yourself in those circumstances, but to actually lift you up. Yeah, I love that. I think that... <laughs> This year, uh, you know, I, I I have the the privilege of of not needing some of those programs, but you know, two anecdotes like one with the DMV. I was able to book an appointment online uh, during COVID. You know, they got you in, they got you distance. It was the it was the easiest you know, fairly online experience I've had with the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles ever. Uh, and the other was during our, our recent presidential election. I mailed in my ballot and like, I actually got a text message that it was received by the post office, that it made its way to San Francisco and that it was ultimately counted. And I was delighted in both of these experiences, which, you know, if if I was looking at, uh, you know, an Amazon purchase, this would have been my minimum expectation. <laughs> and like all of a sudden, I'm thrilled that, that the government has, has made it easier for me to, you know, renew my driver's license and cast a vote. So your point on, you know, bringing up expectations among customers of their government, uh, you know, really hits home to me. And you're you're pointing out a really unique window we have right now, right? Everyone is forced to do things differently. And I think now's the opportunity to not only um, welcome technology in this space, but ensure that while we have this window of technology, that it shows up in a caring, empowering kind of way, just like, thank you for voting. We got it. Right. That is rebuilding this trust in government institutions again that really does allow our government, our country to work smoothly. And frankly, I think we can all agree that we've needed an update for a while. And this is all forcing us government institutions, as well as people in general, to think a little bit differently of how we interact with the systems. Agree. Agree. Um, so one one of the programs I know that that kind of got a little bit of a reset and, and really got a significant push from the pandemic uh, that you run is is a program called Get Your Refund. And I think it's it's really helpful to dig deep into the guts of, of one of the projects that you run. And so can you share a little bit more about what you've done there? Um, you know, the context of, of the need as you identified it, you know, in the pandemic and you know, really what what was the core customer challenge you set off to solve and how did you do that? So um, get your refund. Uh, w here's what we know. They're the two most effective anti-poverty programs are food stamps called SNAP. And the other is earned income tax credit that gives tax refunds to folks generally making 66000 or less. The way that is distributed is through volunteer sites across the country. You can go to these sites and uh, folks will help you fill out your tax forms and that gets you your tax refund. COVID hits and you have a lot of work and folks looking for that tax refund, but you can't go in person to these Vita sites spread across the country. And so we stepped in pretty immediately. We're asked to how can you bring this online? Um, and so we built partnerships with 48 different um, volunteer sites all around the country. And mind you, tax policy is different in every state. So we built this network of Vita sites to bring it online. We 
um, reached into our own brigades, which are about 85 brigades, 25,000 volunteers, and built a volunteer brigade, about 945 volunteers. Um, and we came together, reprocessed what does it take to fill out this form, created a simple, free, easy to use app, um, knowingly with assistance for folks who do get stuck. We recognized throughout this process that it wasn't just enough um, to be the first ever truly free mobile app for um, working families, but it was also important that when people got stuck, we didn't lose them, that we could hold on to them and walk them through if people needed one-on-one help or if we could just answer the key questions that we were seeing pop up that we could get to completion. And so there were, not only was it a digital problem, um, frankly, it was also a trust problem. People were wondering, who is this online thing? I get hit all the time with different ideas. Is this real? So we had a trust problem. And then we had a, um, just along the way, trying to figure out um, how do we, how do we keep you on? How do we do it in multiple languages? All the host of things you might imagine if you were starting a program, moving it from in-person to online. Um, and by the way, the challenge of having to do it in a couple of months as fast as possible. Every single day we knew we were losing a tax filer. Um, so we were really proud at the end of it. Not only did 2.2 million folks reach our website, getyourrefund.org, but we also walked through help for about 500,000 people, whether that was getting them to a stimulus, quick stimulus form or a tax form or adding to their tax benefits they could get. Um, and then we walked through about 30,000 or so where it, these were more complicated tax forms all the way through it. So um, in short order, we turned it around. And what I look forward to now is now we're building up those same partnerships, um, taking the lessons we learned and applying them to now 2021, because we know we have another opportunity to reach folks um, online with, again, the first free mobile app. Um, for working folks, 66,000 or less, go to getyourrefund.org this year, next year. Um, you know, this is where people will go to get tax benefits and where we need to be able to reach folks who are particularly right now with this economic challenge. Yeah, it's a great product. The speed with which you deployed it was amazing. Again, kind of unheard of in this world. But the fact that you recognized early on the need for service alongside of that you know, not being interested in producing the perfect product and recognizing that there will be gaps. And so you know, marrying that with the ability to talk to someone to to get questions answered, I think that, um, you know, really shows the recognition that you know, oftentimes we're very precious about our products and we can spend so much time and effort making them them great. Uh, but uh, oftentimes the the service component that aligns to it is is just as if not more important than that core product experience it's built. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I think there is something about the urgency of every single day we're losing another tax filer really pushes you um, to act. Right. And to not get stuck on the perfect, but let's put it out there and let's change and iterate as appropriate. Um, that really helped us. And that was true throughout this pandemic when it first we're still in the pandemic. But when it first hit and there were all these crisis programs, um, that was a key piece for us, not only jumping in and doing it, but being OK with the idea that we're learning in real time, making adjustments and having the grace to do that, but also the courage 
to not be afraid to jump in knowing um, that someone has to be there. Someone has to move these systems over. Um, so now I think as we move forward in our products, we could be a little bit more thoughtful because we have more data, because we know a little bit more now. Um, but that mindset was really important. And I am um, really happy as I reflect on it, how open our government partners were to also learning those lessons with us. So you mentioned the word courageous. I, I love that. Um, I think that in many ways, uh, you know, it, it it's kind of a defining characteristic of you as being the first Latina chief of staff in the history of the U.S. Senate uh, and, and in the work that you do at Code for America every day. I want to ask, because a lot of companies uh, are are really trying to get after challenges that they've had around diversity, equity, and inclusion in their own organizations. And so as, as someone who's been on the front lines of this for a long time, you know, how do you tackle it at Code for America? And how do you think others in startup land, in technology, can be more successful in DEI efforts? Well, thanks for the question. And um, I think this is the challenge of our generation right now is to make sure that as my kids grow up, um, as all of our kids grow up, they grow up in a world where they feel seen, heard um, with all the potential in the world, um, not having to worry about um, you have to be a certain thing in order to lead or in order to reach your own dreams. But I think that all starts with listening. Um, I was incredibly excited to join Code for America in large part because they had me go through a DEI committee interview. And I know that sounds quite simple, but when you're really assessing an organization and it is important for you to meet with folks with this lens, with the DEI lens, it speaks volumes to what you're trying to do. And I think we can't lose sight of the 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 ways in which we are embedding DEI into everything we do. So at Code for America, we do things like an evolving style guide, right? Just recognizing how we speak matters. The words we use not only matters, but they change over time. We do things like making sure, again, our DEI committee interviews all of our C-suite. Um, they, uh, they run programs and are really pushing us to think about um, how we are including lived experiences as we think about the, our technology, our design, et cetera. Um, I think you know, we've got to be not just cutting edge in terms of how, we, you know, how we're incorporating new perspectives, but how are we really embedding it? Right? And are we standing up when these moments happen where we say systemic racism is real? And we see on the other end, when we build these systems, we gotta talk about the fact that if you have an accent in a lot of systems, um, if you have an accent on your last name, you get thrown out, right? We, got, we have to not only see it, but we have to say something about it and start to then change it in the systems that we build. And so I think there is so much potential to get this right but it starts with actually listening to folks who face these barriers and then doing something about it. And so um, it is a journey we are on. Um, I think it's also important to recognize we've got to give ourselves some grace because we're not going to always get it right. And in fact, even if we get it right, I know my kids are going to tell me I'm using all the wrong words in about a year from now. Um, and we got to keep listening. And so my hope is um, that we will continue to bring in those voices and that those voices continue to evolve over time. 
um, and that we as a country can hear that collectively and start to change the way we interact with each other and expand our own perspectives so that we are reaching to new communities. Great inspiration as, as I go out and grow my own team next year. <laughs> um, well, Amanda, thanks so much uh, for your time. I, I want to leave us on that high note and that challenge to listen to one another, to, to go out and talk to one another. Um, couple of closing questions just for a little bit of fun. When you think about uh, creative tactics, whether it's a company selling a product to you or maybe even the government trying to get you to interact with them, what's one of the most, uh, what's one of the most creative sales tactics that made you buy a product? Um, you know, I'll, I'll use a recent one, which I think um, it was a program that said, you don't have to pay anything, it could just be a donation. And I definitely know I ended up paying more because I was like, that's cool. I appreciate that kind of interaction. Right. And it was as much that it was um, all of a sudden it wasn't a price. It was a relationship that I was paying for. And what I realized about it is if you can make me pay for a relationship, I'll pay more than if you're just making me pay for a product. Awesome. Cool. Well, Amanda, uh, thanks again. It's It's been such a pleasure spending uh, this half an hour with you. Uh, again, I, I wish we had a coffee uh, to share it over, but um, hearing about your story, the, the great work that you and the team at Code for America wake up every day to do, uh, to bring technology to, to government and, and to people who need it most. It's truly inspiring. And um, I'm so pleased to have had a chance to, to have you uh, as a guest today and, and have this chat. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm excited to be with such an innovative group thinking about our future. So I appreciate the time. Thanks, Amanda. It was a pleasure to have you on the pod. You were a true inspiration. I'm super excited to see what innovations Code for America will achieve. Yeah, I loved it. Amanda's story is very inspiring. Code for America really focuses on understanding the people affected by government programs. It's great that they start by understanding the problems from a human-first perspective and then build technology solutions around it. And the feedback loops are a brilliant way to make sure that what they're building is making real impact and working. All while putting people first, which is a really innovative way to operate for most governments. If you like this episode, help us grow. Make sure to subscribe wherever you're getting your podcast and leave us a review. We'll be back next week with Michael Rangel, founder and CEO at Novo. Stay safe and hungry. Mm-hmm.